I'm reading this morning from the book of Ephesians chapter 5, where the Bible says in verse 15, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Messiah, this series is about your future. Your future as a person, the future of your marriage, the future of your children, and the future of the people that you love. This is a series about the future. The trend in counseling today is to explore the past. The idea is that, is that the only way you can know who you are is to get in touch with your past, your childhood. And for a few years, it became so trendy in psychology that it actually became part of our common vocabulary to talk about getting in touch with your inner child. If you spend enough weeks, months, or years in therapy examining all the things that the people around you did to you and said to you, and all your repressed memories, maybe you can figure out why you're in the mess that you're in. I read about a man in uh, Boulder, Colorado, named Thomas Hansen, who sued his parents for $350,000 on the grounds of malpractice of parenting. In his suit, this is a real story, he charged that his mom and dad had so botched his upbringing that he would be in years of costly psychiatric treatment. And that's his way of dealing with it. And I'm not denying that there might be some help in looking to the past. But as far as I can study the Bible, I don't find God telling people to go back over the hurts that people have done to them so that they can find themselves. Can you imagine Joseph? Several years ago, I preached about Joseph living a functional life in a dysfunctional world. Can you imagine Joseph in the prison there in Egypt? The guy walking in his cell with a business suit and a legal pad, sitting across from him and saying, Hi, Joseph. I'm the prison psychologist here, and I'm here to help you get in touch with your inner child. Wouldn't that be a piece of work? I mean, think about this. I mean, his brothers hated his inner child. They threw it in a pit and sold it for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites. I'm not trying to be hard today. I just want to shake us and say that there's a lot of junk going down out there about marriage and family issues that the Christian community has bought into that's a million miles away from what the Word of God teaches now, I just want you to know that this series is about your future. I'm not saying that you shouldn't read about your past and study about your past. I'm just saying this series is not about your past. It's about your future. Really, when it gets down to it, there is nothing that anyone can do about your past because, and this is superfluous to say, the past is history. I hear somebody say, well, pastor, there are some really terrible things in my past and I have to go back and visit and revisit and dredge up and dwell on those things so that I will know who I am. And based on that, through that odyssey through the past, I'm going to somehow discover who I am and know what to do about my problem. Well, that is a choice you can make. And a lot of people are making that choice today. And a lot of good people and a lot of good teaching and so on is, is headed that direction. But I just want to ask you a question today. You, you've got to make the choice on how you're going to deal with your situation. We all have hurts in our past. So my question to you is, do you really want to live in your past? Is that, is that what you want to do? Do you want to live and dwell in your past? That is a choice you can make. 
You can live with all the hurts and pains that people have done to you. If you wish, you can go to the closet of your memories and take out all those jagged pieces of broken glass of things that people have done. You can run your fingers over them and bleed all over again. But let me ask you, do you really want to live in your past? From what I can, from what I can see in years of talking to people, to me, the past is like flypaper. You get stuck there. And it's hard to extricate yourself. And someone will say then, okay, pastor, what do I do with my past? You may think I'm being simplistic, but I believe I'm being biblical today when I say, put your past under the blood of Jesus. Put it under the blood of Christ. What you have done, what others have done to you, what others have said to you, the failures. Listen, I'm talking to some people in your marriage right now, and I don't know who you are. I just, years of pastoring have taught me this, that there are people here today that your, your marriage is a series of failures. And even though you're Christians and you may love the Lord with all your heart, if you look back on your marriage, it's a series of failures. But I'm telling you today, if you want help from the Word of God, put your past failures under the blood of Jesus Christ and leave them there. The problems of your upbringing, for some of you, they are legend. I know that. For many of you, you have great problems in your upbringing. There may even be abuse in your upbringing. But let me tell you something. I just don't know that it serves any purpose to suffer over those memories again and again and again. Put them under the blood of Jesus and leave them to the power of God. Some of you have had problems with your kids today. I mean, you've almost had problems with them from the cradle and now they're teenagers and they're driving you crazy. Or maybe they're 30 years old, they're driving you crazy. Put the past under the blood of Jesus. There's no reason to try to fiddle with the past. Now, I, I want to say this to you this morning. And then again, I'm not trying to be hard about this. But, you know, we're not getting any younger, especially those of us who are adults. Amen. I mean, there, for some reason, there's a point of life, you know, where you want to be 16 so you can drive a car. And then you think about, well, I want to get out of college and then I want to get married. What is that point of life when suddenly you're thinking, man, I'm going downhill here. I just want to say, no matter how old you are here today, you don't have any more time to drive through life looking out your rearview mirror. I mean, it's time to look out the windshield this morning. Remember what God says in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Listen, church, God deals in futures. As near as I can tell, God is not saying, come to me and I will help you sort through all the pain of your past. God said, I have plans to give you a hope and a future to help you go from here. Now, I preached all that to say this this morning. And I hope you understand this, what this series is about. And, and really, I'm not even going to get into the series until next Sunday morning. I just want to tell you what it's about today. I'm not asking you to bring the broken pieces of all the things that have gone wrong in here on Sunday morning for a few moments and we'll sort through them and see what we can put together and come up with. That's not what this series is about. This is not about bringing all the failures here and working through things. I have preached on those kinds of things before. And quite honestly, a lot of the books in the Christian bookstore, are, they take that tack. You know, bring all the broken pieces. Let's sort through them. Let's try to learn new ways of doing things. But I'm not asking you to bring the broken pieces here. All the things that your husband does wrong, all the things that your wife does wrong, all the ways that your parents have let you down, the stuff that your kids do that drive you crazy. I'm not asking you to bring all that stuff here for us to mull over and figure out what kind of Dear Abby advice to give for that. That's not what this series is about. I'm talking about a new start. 
That's what I've been so excited about since the Holy Spirit laid this on my heart. I really believe the truth of this series gives you the potential to make a brand new start in your personal life, in your marriage, and with your children, with your parents. I'm talking about an absolute revolution. God help me. I don't want to be overly critical here today, but I read a lot of popular Christian literature. I read a lot of the stuff in the Christian bookstore like some of you do. And I read a lot of the popular Christian magazines. I read a lot of modern popular Christian literature. And I also read the Word of God. And frankly, church, often there's not a whole lot of resemblance. Because quite honestly, a lot of times what the Christian world does in America today is to warm over and repackage the same gobbledygook that the world is spilling out and put a little Jesus saves in that, put it in the Christian bookstore, and we Christians go and buy it and consume it. I woke up one day after reading a lot of Christian literature to discover that most contemporary Christian writing on the subject of marriage and family issues follows the principle of behavior modification. Now, behavior modification is a broad term. It runs the gamut all the way from its, from its sophisticated clinical psychiatric application to modern pop psychology. In reference to the latter, I was reading this week about uh, a, a behavior Alter, uh, behavior modification uh, two weeks that you can spend on Hilton Head. Now that sounds good to me, just being in Hilton Head. I mean, I think I could change a little of my behavior just to spend two weeks on Hilton Head. But in any event, if, you know, the, 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 the thing is, if you, uh, if you have a lot of fear or anxiety, or if you're overweight, you want to learn to lose weight, whatever, come to Hilton Head for two weeks and you can modify your behavior. In simple layman's terms, behavior modification is the idea that people do bad things because they develop negative patterns of behavior. So if a person is going to get help, he has to identify those bad patterns, begin to replace that bad conduct by learning and practicing new ways until, voila, he has a whole new pattern of conduct. Now, I may be painting with a bit of a broad brush, but basically, that is behavior modification. And frankly, folks, when I go to the Christian bookstore and I read a lot of stuff that's coming out today, all it is is warmed over behavior modification. And I want to be clear, since this is the first day of this new series, I want you to understand this is not a series about modifying your behavior. I preach that because, you know, sometimes when I preach, and I preach a lot of series on homes and families, you know, a wife will say, I hear wives say, well, I want to get my husband in there because, you know, pastor, he just does so many wrong things. And I want to get him in there and set him under your teaching so he can learn how to talk nice to me and do the right things. And I hear men say, you know, my wife doesn't meet my needs. And so I'm, I'm hoping that I can get her here in this series and you can ambush her and talk to her and tell her how to change her behavior. That's not what this series is about. I'm not here to, to change your behavior or to help you change your behavior. Now, I will be clear about one thing. If you don't have God in your life, if you don't believe in God, if you do not have within you the supernatural, omnipotent, transforming power of God in your life, frankly, I would go for the behavior modification because it's the best of the cheap substitutes. But if you have God in your life, it's different. Now, what's the problem with behavior modification? Because you may say, well, I tell you already, Pastor, I don't like you. I... I don't think you're with the 21st century. You sound like one of those guys Neanderthals back from the 1930s. Well, I, don't, I really don't care what you think about me. But I do want you to consider for just a few moments the problems with behavior modification. There are three fatal flaws with behavior modification. And, and I just don't ever believe that they'll be able to, to climb over these, these great mountains. Here's the first one. 
Behavior modification misses the possibility of, trans, uh, of transformation. Now, suppose you go to counseling and the counselor's taking the track of behavior modification. So he says, tell me all the things that you're doing wrong or tell me all the things that your husband's doing wrong. So you start telling. So he says, well, I think I can help you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you these, we're going to give you this series of exercises. We want you to try these exercises and over a period of a week or two weeks or six weeks, let's see if the behavior begins to change. So you're in that pattern of saying, how can I stop doing the things that are being harmful? How can I start doing things that are positive until I develop a new pattern? That is behavior modification. Here's the thing. Behavior modification sets out before you the possibility of help. Well, let me tell you something. What we're going to be talking about this summer doesn't offer you the, the possibility of help. It offers you the possibility of transformation. Let me talk to wives for just a moment. Say your husband is not what you want him to be. Let's say your husband is not even what any, anywhere close to what he ought to be. He doesn't talk right to you. He doesn't behave himself well and so on. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you rather have? Would you rather go through a series of life with somebody trying to show him step by step what he should be saying, or would you rather his heart be changed? Because here's the issue. Behavior changes once. Behavior can change again. Anytime a new pattern is established, there can be a new set of behaviors. But when the Holy Spirit of God transforms the heart, out of that heart, that new heart, will flow the, the kind of behavior that God wants. Amen? So that's my first problem with behavior modification. It ignores the possibility and the promise of real transformation. Then, number two, it overlaps, overlooks rather the supernatural power of God. Now, here's the thing. If you come to my office... And I say, what patterns of behavior are you into? And you tell me, and I say, okay, we're going to try these exercises. And throughout these, through these exercises, you're going to learn a new pattern of behavior. You know whose power I'm counting on on that basis? I'm counting on your power. Because see what you're doing, you're employing your mental, your psychological, your emotional power. You're employing those powers that you have in order to try to change your behavior. So that's okay. I mean, if a person is lost, they don't have Jesus Christ in their life, the Holy Spirit is not operative in their world, that's probably the best they can hope for, is to go home and try to put 100% in to changing their lives. But if you are born again by the power of God, you have God's power in your home. Listen, the Bible talks in the book of Romans about the same power that raised up Jesus from the dead. When you have that power in your home, in your marriage, then you can begin to live a whole new way. Thirdly, Third fatal flaw of behavior modification is it leads people to focus on what they want. If there is a counseling situation going on and the model of behavior modification is being used, the counselor will say, what? oh, I've, I've seen this so many times. What would you like to have in your marriage? What kind of marriage? And that, that is one of the first questions of the gobbledygook that goes on in the modern counseling. What kind of marriage would you like to have? Tell me, in your mind, in your thinking, what would be a model marriage? See, that's the underlying premise of behavior modification. Do you know what you want? When you know what you want, then you change your behavior. You can have what you want. But I want to tell you today, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but sir, it is not significant that your wife be what you want her to be. Ma'am, it's not significant that your husband be what you want him to be. Parents, it's not even important that your children be what you want them to be. If you belong to Jesus Christ, the question is, what does God want them to be? And I just don't think behavior modification can turn people into what God wants them to be. That's what we're here for this summer. We're here to get in touch with what God wants. 
I don't want to get in touch with my inner child. I want to get in touch with my heavenly father. Now, do you want to see what a godly family looks like? You say, Pastor, I don't have one, but would you just like to see what one looks like? Would you like to see a prototype? It's in Ephesians 5. That's our text. Now, I want you to look down around verse 25. Number one, what a great family looks like. A a husband who loves his wife. I hear a husband say, oh, Pastor, I'm a great lover. Wait a minute. Pastor, I love my wife. I don't have any problem with that. Well, just hang on a second. Why don't you read the text with me and see how you're doing. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Okay, husbands, you ready? You want to see if you love your wife? The Bible gives you two criteria. The first one is that you love your wife as you love yourself. Now, men, this is between wives. Just don't listen for a moment. This is between me and the men, okay? You just got to plug up your ears right now. You know what the Holy Spirit knows about men? He knows that we're innately selfish. Okay, ladies, you can listen again. (laughs) And so you know what he says? Because we're innately selfish to show that there is a transformation... Here is, the, here is the principle. Husbands, love your wives as you love yourself. That means the same kind of emotion you pour into your own needs, into your own desires. You are to pour those into your wife because you love her as you love yourself. Some husband could say, Pastor, I think I'm pretty close to getting there. I'm going to get to the finish line. I'm going to love my wife as much as I love myself. Well, hang on, partner, because I'll tell you, God has a real one for you next. He says, love your wife like Jesus loved us. Well, how did Jesus love us? Well, among other things, 2,000 years ago, he walked up a hill with a cross on his back and lay down and allowed men to nail nails into his hands and feet after they had beat a crown of thorns into his brow and spit in his face and pulled his beard out. And he did that willingly because he loved us. Now, I can tell you, after thinking about the way I love my wife, I could hope to say after almost 25 years of marriage, I could hope to say, I think I love my wife hopefully as much as I love myself. But I don't know that I could ever say, I love my wife as much as Jesus loved me. So, husbands, do you get the idea? The Holy Spirit is saying, this is a pursuit that you're going to be in the rest of your life. So if you want to see what a godly home looks like, it is a husband who absolutely adores his wife as much as he loves himself, seeking to love her as much as Jesus loved him. It is a husband on a never-ending quest to put his wife first. Number two, a wife who gives her husband her heart. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Oh, a lot of misunderstanding goes on there. Some look at that and say, well, there it is. The Bible's written by a bunch of male chauvinists bent on the subjugation of women. Well, you might want to read that again. It doesn't say, husbands, force your wives into submission. As near as I can tell, ladies, it's between God and you. It's not even addressed to the husbands. 
This is something within the will of the wife. It's something with... See, here's the thing. You don't have to do any of these things that I'm suggesting this summer. It's a free country. You can walk out of here and do whatever you wish. This is between God and you. And, and what does a godly home look like? Well, it starts out with the husband who adores his wife as much as he loves himself, seeking to love her as much as Christ loved him. And then it's a wife. And here's the thing that I get about submission here. I don't think we're talking about a husband cracking a whip and a wife is saying, yes, sir, I'll do whatever you ask. I think we're talking about a woman here who yields her heart to her husband. It's not a matter of performing some sort of ritual obedience. It's a matter of a wife who yields her heart, her emotions, her soul to the safekeeping of her husband. And then, thirdly, if you want to see what a spirit-filled home looks like, it's children who honor and obey their parents. In Ephesians 6, we're going to move to chapter 6 now, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you. And that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So you're looking at spirit-filled home. What's going on in spirit-filled home? There's a man who loves his wife as much as he loves himself. Seeking to love her as much as Christ loved him. A woman who yields her heart to her husband. They're on the same team. She wants to be in his world. She wants to love him. She wants to make him her life. And now you have children who respect and honor their parents. Not perfect kids. Not Stepford kids. But I'm talking about kids who truly want to do what their parents want them to do. And then finally, the fourth principle of a godly home is now we move it later on in chapter 6 to verse 4, where the Bible says, talks about parents who bring their children up with love and discipline and teaching. Ephesians 6 verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, do you see what it looks like? That's what a godly home looks like. Husband who loves his wife, wife who yields her heart to her husband, children who obey their parents, and Fathers and mothers who are lovingly teaching their children, not exasperating them, not trying to, you know, you know, in a lot of homes. Listen, I'll preach about this later. But there are a lot of homes where kids, one day the rule is this, the next day the rule is this. Kids don't know what the rules are. If their dad's in a bad mood, the standard could be very high. If dad's in a good mood, the standard can be low. The kids are exasperated trying to figure out who mom and dad are and what they want. But in a godly home, Children are not exasperated because the parents are taking parenting very seriously. So if you want to know what a great home looks like, there it is. It's all in Ephesians 5 and 6. Oh, I'm going to talk to baby boomers for a moment. And I know there are even some programs like I'm about to describe on modern television and a very crazy one on MTV these days. But uh, you remember growing up and watching those dangerous stunts on television? You know, somebody doing something crazy with a car, just, just something stupid. And the announcer would say, don't try this at home, boys and girls. I remember that. Don't try this at home, boys and girls. They would say something to this effect. The person who did this stunt is trained. He is experienced. He is qualified. In effect, he can do it. But if you try it at home, boys and girls, you're just going to get frustrated. You might get hurt. Now, listen, church. I just talked to you about what a great family looks like. But I want to tell you, only people who are qualified can have that. In fact, if you're not qualified, don't try that kind of home at home, boys and girls, because somebody's going to get frustrated and somebody might get hurt. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Preachers preaching that wives, let's just take the second point, that wives should be submissive to the husband. And, I, and there's some selfish guy sitting out there in the pew who's been waiting, waiting, waiting for that. 
because now the pastor has given him the right to beat his wife over the head with a 48-pound Schofield Bible. And he goes home and says, bless God, sister, did you hear what the pastor said this morning? You're going to start obeying me. And there have been a few parents who slap their kids around with the Bible and say, you know, you heard what the pastor said, children obey your parents. I just want to say to you that there, there, there are some qualifications with this godly home. And don't try this at home, boys and girls, unless you are qualified to have this kind of home. Because it won't work. And you're going to get frustrated. And somebody might get hurt. What are the qualifications? Friend, let me tell you something. Don't try to have the kind of home we talked about without two things. We'll go back to Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment because we're all in this context here and the Holy Spirit is going to teach us some things. If you want to have the kind of home we've talked about, number one, there must be salvation. There must be salvation. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read some verses here, first part of the chapter. Verse 1. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children... And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you, Paul is talking to the church, the Christian community. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Look at this, church. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Now listen, before Paul ever tells husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands, before he gets to the point about children obeying their parents, and then talking about parents not exasperating their children, from the very beginning he says, you better make sure that you know that you're saved. He says, don't be deceived. And then he gets into some things. And I think these are some things that the American church needs to hear in 2002. He said, don't be deceived about life conduct. He said, don't even let there be a hint of sexual immorality in the life of God's people. Because he said, those people who live in that kind of lifestyle, he said, don't be deceived. They are not saved. Not saved. Not born again. Now, a Christian can fall into immorality. There's no doubt about that. But he's talking about somebody who practices a lifestyle of that. Folks, I believe the church needs to hear that today because we have a bunch of people who claim to be Christians who don't live at all like they know Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is saying don't be deceived about that. What's, what, what, wherein lies the deception? Is it that these people don't know about their conduct and therefore they're deceived? Not at all. He suggests that they do know about their conduct. He's saying you know about some people who live in impurity and greed and ungodliness. He is suggesting that these people know about them. And in the process, he is saying, don't be deceived. These people are not saved. I believe there are some inhibitors to salvation in the modern church today. We live in a very greedy culture. We live in a sexually immoral, sexually immoral saturated culture. And I am convinced that a lot of people are not making their way to Jesus Christ because these things 
are in their lives. Let us make no mistake about it. True salvation occurs when someone accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and receives Jesus as the new boss of their lives. It's not a matter of joining a Baptist church. It's not a matter of being able to beat your friends at Bible trivia. It's not even a matter of being on the church roll of Messiah Baptist Church. None of those things will get you into heaven. You must be born again. And before Paul talks about the kind of home, he says somebody's got to be saved. Now I'm afraid that there are a lot of homes that have Baptist in them. And religious people and people who listen to Christian radio and so on, those are all fine and good in their place. But none of those take the place of somebody being born again. Are you sure you're going to heaven? You say, Pastor, you're trying to make me doubt my salvation. Listen, I believe if you're truly born again, you know you're saved. You may struggle with a doubt someday. You may get up on the wrong side of the bed and Satan may talk to you for a few moments. But if you're a God's child, you go to the word of God and say, yes, I know I'm saved. There's God's word on it. And I have God's Holy Spirit in me. I mean, you know if you're saved. Second week of June, I'll be married 25 years. Somebody came to me and said, do you know if you're married or not? Wouldn't I be crazy? I said, well, I'm not sure if I'm married or not. Man, I know I'm married. I'm sure of it. So I have, I have three sons. And somebody said, are you a father? Well, I'm not really sure. Man, I know I'm a father. I know it. Those are great, marvelous life changes. I know those things have happened to me. If you are saved, you know that you are saved. I honestly think this, and I'm going to get off into a little bit of a sacred area here in some people's lives. We're not in football season right now, but you know, in football, there's a, there's a pass that's called the Hail Mary. Roger Staubach threw one in 1975, and now they have it. You know, it's if a, if a team is a long way from the end zone, they have maybe one or two plays left before the end of the half or the end of the game. The quarterback will put all the receivers over on one side, and he'll drop back as far as he can and just throw the football toward the end zone and hope for the best. Very few times it's successful. Most times the ball is either swatted down or intercepted. On occasion, the receiver will jump up and catch a deflected pass. That's the Hail Mary play. I really believe there are a lot of people who sit in Baptist churches week after week after week and they listen to the word of God, but they're in the last part of the game and they're throwing the ball up and hoping that at the end it's going to work out all right. Let me tell you something today. If you want the kind of home God wants you to have, you need to know for sure that you were born again, saved. It's not enough to have parents who were saved. It's not enough to be a member of of a Bible-preaching church, you must know that you personally have been born again by the Spirit of God, that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is in your life. Otherwise, you know what? You're just living a life of behavior modification. But when Christ moves in, there is a power to live a new life. So when you think about the kind of home that we read about where a husband loves his wife and wife yields her heart to her husband, children obey their parents and Parents don't exasperate their kids. Don't try that at home unless somebody is born again. Number two, don't try it at home unless you are filled with God's Spirit. I'll talk about this more next week. But you see, God's Holy Spirit comes in to live in the life of a Christian. Now, at the moment of salvation, you get all of the Holy Spirit you're going to ever have. The question is, how much of you is the Holy Spirit going to get? And when you allow God's Holy Spirit to have control of your life, 
You have the power of God working in you, which makes you able to live and do things, live in a way and do things that you were not previously able because now it isn't just your power coming to bear on the problems. It's God's power. Now, here's the thing. Church, we're going to talk about spirit filling. And by the way, there's a whole series I preached on the Holy Spirit two years ago. You can find that back at the tape table. But here's the key to being filled with God's spirit. Go back to salvation for a moment. How does a person get saved? A person gets saved by opening his or her heart to Jesus Christ and abandoning all, abandoning all hope of any other help other than Jesus Christ. Listen, when you, you know what it sounds like to get saved? I'm not trusting the church. I'm not trusting my religion. I'm not trusting my good works. I'm not trusting some fortuitous circumstance. I'm not trusting the idea that everybody goes to heaven. I am trusting Jesus Christ. I am opening my heart to Jesus Christ. I am receiving him totally and accepting him. I am inviting him in to take complete control of my life. That's what salvation sounds like. When you open your heart to Jesus Christ, he comes in. In the same measure for the child of God, it works that way with the Holy Spirit. You open up all the doors and windows of your life, all those closed off areas that you haven't let God in. And you let the Holy Spirit blow his sweet breath through your heart and your life and you invite him in and you say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm a child of God, but I am making a royal mess of things here today. And I'm about tired of all the mess that I've been making. So Holy Spirit, I want you to come in and take over my marriage and take over my relationship with my kids and my wife. And I want you just to blow through my soul today and I'm turning things completely over to you. You now have the wheel I'm sitting in the passenger seat. It takes that to have the kind of home that we're talking about. Church, I hope I haven't offended anybody today. It was certainly not my, my cause. But I am so passionate about this series. I have believed with all my heart that I've been sitting on the most powerful truth that God has ever given me for the home. We're not even started yet. We get started next Sunday. But I honestly believe as we come to the invitation right now, You have a decision to make, and that is this. On what basis will I order my life? On what basis will I order my marriage? It'll either be on the world's way of trying to get the behavior to line up with what I want, or it'll be yielding my life and my marriage and my children to the Holy Spirit of God. That is a choice. It's not going to happen by osmosis. It's not going to happen, you know, it's not going to happen in stages It is a choice. What I am pleading with you today to do is to make the choice of doing it God's way. Would you respond to that today and say, by God's grace, not following Pastor Hoover, because, see, I I have to follow like you have to follow. I, I am just a man giving God's word, not my word. I need this like you need this. But are you willing to follow and do it God's way? Let's bow our heads for prayer. There may be someone here today, and you just say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I don't know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt if I were to die that I would go to heaven. Would you pray for me in the stillness and anonymity of this moment? No one looking around, no one will disturb you. But would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I am not sure that I am saved. I want to know that before I die, but I am not sure today. Would you just put your hand up, please, where I can see it? Yes.
I'm going to ask you to do the boldest thing you've ever done in your life, and that's to get out of your seat in just a moment and meet me right here at the front, those of you who raised your hands today. And there'll be a man or woman who'll take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. Maybe talking to husbands or wives here today, and you just say, you, in fact, you might just want to take your wife or your husband by the hand and just go to the altar today and say, God, help us to have the kind of home we read about. You may be a wife here today, and your husband wouldn't even come with you today or couldn't come with you, or a husband your wife couldn't come with you. You know, I, I really, the older I get, the more I, I really believe it. It really just takes one person. It's best if both people are working. But all it takes is for one person to truly believe God and to wait on God. You just may want to get out of your seat today and kneel at the altar and say, God, help me. I want to have the kind of life. I want to have the kind of home where the Holy Spirit is in charge, where there's a powerful living that I don't have within myself. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Whatever God is asking you to do, maybe God is leading you to become a member of this family of faith. You just do whatever God wants you to do. As Pastor Price leads us in song, you slip out of your seat. You do what God wants. Messiah out.